Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. And welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the infernal task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whip, and today we have an equally infernal discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. It's finally warm enough for me to wear shorts. Yes, because here in Chicago it is May 23rd, and we finally are not afraid of snow coming down from the skies. In other words, winter has come. Yes, the winter's coming, you know, the whole... Game of Thrones, never mind. And finally, <laughs> we have our Sunday ah. Novice fan. Yeah, now she gets it. And he gets it too. One who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello, Infernal Friends. Infernal Friends. Devilish duo. And Infernal mm-hmm. Foes. All our enemies who listen to us every week with bated breath, <laughs> waiting Infernal. for errors. Yes, but why they put a hook in their throat? I have no idea. Uh, who knows? No accounting for taste. Bing, bing. Just to say, I'm doing my own. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Your own rim shot. Both of you are too young to remember the Gong Show, but that reminded me of it. Before we get to talking about the book, let's briefly, briefly talk about our Patreon page. At patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc, depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those that you're using them as sandbags during major floods. (laughs) As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we would like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Dinglesdorf, Jay Barry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. All right, we also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and you can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the last Season 6 novelization. We are already out of Season 6. Oh. Yes. And that Wait, would be, this was the finale? This was the finale. This was it. This was it. About dying with a whimper. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we, we going out with a whimper. We have to talk about that. <laughs> You'd think that, but without further ado, here, Jesus, I'm snorted on that. <laughs> Let me try it again. That's adorable. Here. This is awful. <laughs> right up your nose. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's 
for our patrons to enjoy. <laughs> Why? This is what they shell out for. <laughs> yes. yes, thank you for keeping us on the virtual air. This is what we bring to you. This quality stuff every month. Thank you for keeping us in decongestance. <laughs> yeah, which obviously I need more of. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Inferno, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Don Houghton, but aired from 5.9.70 to 6.2070, published by Target Books in June 1984. As of this recording in May of 2019, this title is currently out of print 126 pages. Now, the reason why I said what I did to Allison just now is because I have a special fondness for Inferno for a number of reasons. It's not only the first Pertwee story I ever saw, hmm. it's also a story that's literally as old as I am. Hmm. They were filming the story of the day I was born 49 years ago, hmm. which is kind of... In fact, when the Doctor and the Brigadier go up on the, the top of the thing to talk about Krakatoa, that was April 6, 1970. Oh, very cool. So it's like, oh, no wonder I like this story so much. It was all this time. I know. <laughs> Here's the sad part, though. This book, the original... Uh, was part of that subscription service that I told you that I've had where you get a new book every month. Uh -huh. Problem is, this sucker came in two weeks before Inferno was coming on on my local PBS station. I was like, no way. Hmm. Okay, I'm, I, I don't want to read this before watching it. I want to see it. But we had a school trip that Saturday, so I had to leave and not see it and get back late, so I only saw the last hour of it. And I, it still is my favorite story mm. because that last mm. hour is hugely impressive. Mm -hmm. And because I knew I was going to miss it, I ended up reading the book on the bus. Mm. So it was one of the few books where I read it and mm. immediately saw it on TV cool. within, you know. Yeah, so it's bizarre. But I would have done that anyway. I love this story. It happens to be one of, if not the best absolute performance that Pertwee ever gives in this part. It's all downhill from here. Mm. my humble opinion. <laughs> like I have a humble opinion. Thing is... Tony's arrogant opinion. Yes. Thing is, everything that makes it so special were limitations imposed by the budget, and it all happens despite problems with the director, Douglas Camfield. For one thing, the story has one of the moodiest and most appropriate soundtracks ever, and it's all stock music. Hmm. In fact, most of it is um, electronica that Delia Derbyshire who wrote the original um, theme for Doctor Who, did in the 60s hmm. for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it was used for all sorts of other things. But it works for this story. Nothing new was composed for this story at all. It's all existing music. For another, Don Houghton's original script was only four episodes long. And guess what part of the script was missing? What part of the story was missing? The other world. Yeah. The other convention. The original four episodes was just going to be in our universe. And they said, you know, we need seven parts. Can you kind of mm. pad this out a bit? And he said, oh, I'll do better than mm. that. And added the alternate universe mm. storyline. And it just makes the story pop. It really does. Well, on screen anyway. Uh, to help pay for the many actors and the elaborate sets, they decided to make it a seven-parter. And they added that subplot. Uh, director Douglas Canfield had directed episodes since the Hartnell era, and would do a few more after this. In fact, Petra was played by his wife, Sheila Dunn. He had a minor heart attack on set on April 27th, which meant the producer, Barry Letts, stepped in as director for episodes 3 through 7. Letts made sure that Camfield kept the sole director's credit, 
especially as he said that all he had to do to direct the remaining episodes was follow Camfield's meticulous notes. Because um, one of the um, production designers said that Camfield was like a, um, a drill sergeant. Mm. He would say, okay, we're at this time, so we should be on this scene doing this. And it was just a ch -ch 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 -ch, which is probably why he ended up having a heart attack. This story is meticulous. <laughs> it's very Scheduled complicated. heart attack. Yeah. Scheduled heart attack. attack. Yeah. From the 27th, I'm going to almost drop dead of a heart attack, and Let's can take over. The imagery in the story, no matter who directed it, is really quite stunning and haunting at times. In fact, I may show you a few clips after we're done, but that doesn't translate to the page. That's not always the case with Houghton's other work, unfortunately. Houghton, born in 1930, was a personal friend of Terence Dick's, and he proposed the story based on an actual drilling project that was going on at that time, hmm. called the Mole Hole Project. And they were trying to drill, not to the core of the planet, but further down than anyone had ever gone before. Okay. He'd go on to write one other story in the next season, The Mind of Evil, but he was better known for writing some of the Hammer Horror movies of the 70s, including Dracula A.D. 1972, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, and The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Do you see a pattern? Indeed. Of course you do. And he died in 1991. Okay. Back cutter. I was telling my panelists before we started recording that I've been making them read an inordinate number of these back <laughs> covers, <laughs> so it's probably time that I gave them a little break. So I will read the back corner of the back cover of this one here. <laughs> Patrick Stewart will read it for us. Yeah. Tony, yeah. where must the line be drawn? I mean, it must be drawn here and no further. <laughs> anyway, yes. I'll wait until we open the beer. There, there we go. You said not to make the listeners envious. No, but they'll be envious anyway because it is Belgian white uh, blue moon. It is. Yes. Listen to it fizz. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to wait until it's almost busy. Flop, flop, fizz, fizz. Totally different substance. All right. Inferno is the name of a top-secret drilling project to penetrate the Earth's crust and release a major new energy source. A crisis develops when a noxious liquid leaks out as drilling progresses. The green poison has a grotesquely debilitating effect on human beings. As the Earth's plight worsens, the Doctor is trapped in a parallel world, unable to rescue the planet and its inhabitants from the destructive force of Inferno. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Indeed. So this is the book. It's a very bright orange because, of course, at some point the story turns bright orange. Hmm. And I've always loved it for that. Before we get to discussing it, Trey Corte, who couldn't be with us tonight, wanted to put in his two cents about it. And he wants to um, talk about what ruined parallel universes for him. And it's, uh, <laughs> let's just say, it's really quite interesting. Let me let Trey speak for himself. All right, so this is Trey here, um, chiming in on why what I've learned about sex has forever ruined parallel universe stories for me. I like a good parallel universe story, but I'll never forget in my seventh grade sex ed class at my religious school, you know, they were talking about what happens during reproduction. And I remember being told that during the moment of ejaculation, there were X number of sperm that were released and that only one of them fertilizes the egg. And so, you know, it was very clear that we only had this tiny chance that we actually ended up being the people who we are. 
and this totally messed with my mind. And so if you think about what it would take for all these parallel universes to have, it, re it involves all the same people having the exact same sexual partners and ejaculating at the right moment in the same way. And it, it, just no, it wouldn't work. I mean, this even messes up things like Back to the Future, if you think about it. So um, what I learned about human reproduction has made the credibility of parallel universe stories really, really difficult for me. Because I understand that, like, okay, what if Britain lost World War II and that's where the deviation occurs? It's unlikely that all the same people would have ended up pairing up. It just, it really, really is. So when they've got eye patches and, you know, different colored hair, those, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to get my head around. So um, that is how sex has forever soured parallel universe stories for me. Well, I, I do have a solution to that problem. Just stop having sex. And it won't ruin parallel universe stories for you. But also, just because it's improbable doesn't mean it's impossible. That's true. Also, they're parallel universes, so there's an infinite number of them, so... So it could just be that the doctor stepped into the one where everybody had the same sex partners. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Where society has diverged in such a way that they are now all fascists, but they still all work at the same time. I mean, there's yes. a there's like a quote from the doctor in this book that says, yeah, it's not possible. It's, it's basically like what I just said. It's improbable, but yeah. it doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah, he hangs a lampshade on it, definitely. Yeah, it's just like... Point. Just let them wash over me because, yeah, that's... yeah. That is the objection, yeah. yeah. This much alike and then this much different. And that's always the case with parallel universe stories. I mean, when we get Mirror Universe in Star Trek, for instance, you always wonder, wait a minute, this at least makes some modicum of sense during Kirk's time, but then I guess it happens in Enterprise time, and the same people end up together then, and you get it in DS9 time, and Discovery, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's all part of dealing with time travel. Period. It also yes. doesn't ask you to take it seriously as like hard sci-fi. This is possible. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, which is weird. It's not too pretentious. Because when you do watch the story, the story, oh my god, the the story is serious as a heart attack. Sorry, Douglas Canfield. But, um, <laughs> oh. he, he's dead now, so it doesn't matter. But um, his heart attack? No, no, no. He died later of a heart attack, but not doing a Doctor Who story. Funny story about that. His heart attack. <laughs> Sheila Dunn, his wife, actually made him go to, um, God, what is the name of the cathedral, the famous cathedral in London, and he had to swear at the altar that he would not direct another Doctor mm. Who story, because apparently the last one he directed almost killed him too, mm. and she's like, no more of this, none. St. Paul's? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, St. Paul's, it might have been mm. St. Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. Or Canterbury or someplace. Anyway, <laughs> Inferno. So, yes. His final fatal heart attack. It was not directing an episode of Doctor Who. No, no, he, <clears throat> no. But I believe he did die of a heart attack because he had heart problems from the late sixties onward. But yeah, Doctor Who tended to exacerbate his hmm. problems because it's just so. Yeah, there's so much to do. So Inferno. Well, I'm laughing at your loud slurping cat. I know. <laughs> Damn cat decides to start drinking out of the water dish just as we're doing this. Thank you, Frisky. Well, we know what Frisky thinks of Inferno, so... Well, first impressions. We generally go there. What were your first impressions when you uh, got sent this one? Zombie story. Ooh. Just from from the cover, I was thinking zombie. I was thinking, yeah, some something is going to make people change somehow. 
-hmm. people are going to be infected. Didn't quite go that route, but (laughs) close enough. Okay. Not cranberry zombie. No. (laughs) Bless her heart, she's dead now, too. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Um, Yeah, but just the cover with this, like, shambling underbite, red eyes. uh, Greenishness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not enough greenishness, as it turns out. No. And they don't have red eyes in the story. They couldn't. Have, they didn't have the budget for that. But that's Bromley. That's mm. the scientist you hear so much about. And you have to actually meet in the first two pages, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is interesting. You actually know the names of the people who turn into monsters. Yes. In most cases, mm-hmm. you don't have just, you know, random monsters. So there for is sure. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Allison, what about you? Usually I'm pretty interested in the first 30 pages, and then it sort of <laughs> shifts into run down tunnel, climb ladder, everything resolves, that right. sort of thing. Right. This was the opposite. It was you know, 30 or 40 pages of talking about the drill bit control software, <laughs> uh, which actually was, you know, as engaging as that can be for someone, who, for, for non-technical information, and for those of us who are not, wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be up on the technical information anyway. Um, I, I did not see Parallel Universe coming at all. Really? No. No, I did oh, not. Wow. Definitely. I was actually thinking, okay, this is fine for 30 or 40 pages, but there will be 135 pages of recalibrating <laughs> the drill bit. That's going to, to wear thin. I think so. that would have been the original yeah. story. But I yeah. did actually find it um, upsettingly modern and current. Really? With the, uh, yeah, just the, the headlong rush, we've got to finish the energy product, got to do it, safety concerns are irrelevant, I don't care what the computer says, mm-hmm. I don't care what the engineer says, I don't care what the crew says, go, go, go. Yeah. And that seemed uh, it's uh, still It's very Elon Musk, current. isn't it? Yes, well, current and really just, well, it actually was, um, I think I mentioned before, I was watching, um, recently I've just watched the first season of Cloak and Dagger, which is available yeah. on Hulu now, but... I think it was produced by Freeform. Yes. And it starts with a different origin story than comics, comics cloak and dagger. It starts with an oil rigged oil rig disaster. Oh. Um, in New Orleans. Oh, okay. And it's eight years ago, so obvious it's obviously yeah. very closely related to in timeline to the Deepwater the Hor- yeah, yeah, the Deepwater Horizon. horizon. It, but it actually has a very similar storyline to this where there's a substance that makes people go crazy really? and become hyper aggressive, sort of like the Reavers and Serenity. But it has a similar start off story mm-hmm. where one of the scientists on the phone is saying, No, you've got to stop drilling. This valve is unsafe and people are saying, Oh, whatever, there's money to be made oh, God. Which is not unlike the original disaster. Yeah. Um, wherein, you know, surviving crew members talked about, oh yeah, BP had a hotline you could call and, uh, you know, suggest uh, cost-saving measures. And if they implemented them, you got a bonus. And people talked about the culture of profit over wow. safety. And so it seemed, unfortunately, very relevant to yeah. today. Yeah. It, it does, actually. Yeah. And no checks and balances. Just yeah. a madman at the helm. Yeah. And not because, <laughs> no one, not because no one sees it coming, but because no one who sees it coming has the authority to do anything about yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. So. And at every step, they're trying to do something, and they're trying to get the authority, but he circumvents them. Yep. This is sounding more and more like, yeah, the mm-hmm. the guy who's turning into a monster before our eyes actually yep. always was one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> God. Boy, that went dark really quickly. Ooh, Good. Uh-huh. This should be fun. <laughs> so I'd prefer for it to be an outdated story, but it's not. 
Yeah. No, it really isn't. It really isn't. And that's part of the, probably part of the appeal of it, but also part of the appeal is just this apocalyptic end of the world that you actually get to see before, mm. yeah. you know, the episode ends. Yeah. And, and like Allison, I didn't see the separate timeline happening. I was starting to be like, where the fuck is this going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then that happened. I'm like, oh, great. Okay, here we go. Here's shifting into a new gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of me was like, great, alternate universe. We're going to learn how to fix this problem without this being a problem. But mm-hmm. just the final end of just, no, we're fucked. And we, the doctor has to get back to his reality so yeah. he can save stuff there. But we are all lost. Yeah. And I think that would have been what surprised audiences in 1970. Yeah. They would have thought that the Doctor would save that alternate yeah. timeline. Yes. Or bring he, back the people he knew. Yes. And rescue them. can't do either one. In fact, has to leave them to their fates, which is really quite grim. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're watching it on screen, because the last shot is them backing away from the garage door, and there's lava coming towards them. Of course, it's a terrible CSO shot with um, you know, special effects lava on film, and it doesn't match the studio, but by that point, you do not care, because you're like, oh my fucking god. Go on, Doctor, go now! I can't, it's talk to erratic. We really have to hope that Liz Shaw has three bullets left in that gun, hmm. because that scene haunts me, yeah. to this day. It's like... I hope to God there were enough bullets in that gun. That wow. would be, I would not want to go any other way at that point. And the way Dix treats that scene, that the, the Doctor th- hopes that they realize that in their last moments that their sacrifice wasn't in vain. Yeah. It's like, oh, heavy stuff. Uh-huh. It's not Trouton-esque, is it? The reason I was surprised it was the finale wasn't as an insult to the story when it ends with a whimper, is I expected there to be more of a status change for the doctor that he mm. yeah he his mobility is restored oh, if you okay. will yeah um, no kind of is but not in the way he wants it sure yes yes but i thought it seemed more like a mid-season sort of change oh than a, i see gotcha yeah i was wondering how both of you reacted to that first scene when the tardis dematerializes and he is in the limbo because that's probably why you didn't see the parallel universe thing coming there was something like that in the last book, and then nothing... It wasn't followed up within that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt very much just like, well, the Doctor's still testing stuff out. You know, he's got something figured out, but it's right. nothing of substance. But clearly yeah. it was something. In fact, I, I made a note of this. I said one line in the middle of page 21 represents one of the freakiest sequences ever filmed for the show. And it really does not translate to the page very well. Because, yes, Frisky, we know you (laughs) want to have your say about this too. Um, Essentially, and I can't remember what the line is, but it's really short. And it's basically, meanwhile, the doctor was falling ass over the head. The doctor found himself clinging to the console, turning over and over, swept up in the blackness of limbo. That's it. The sequence on screen goes on for about a minute, a full minute, and has, you know, probably pulling faces while this kind of weird effect is going on, and some very loud sound effects, and then when he finally does return to where he was, he comes in with a crash, literally, 
And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. There's no way to really... Well, there's no way that Dick seems to really want to have represented that on the page, which is... I think if you had seen... If he had done more with that, you'd probably see the parallel universe thing coming more clearly. Yeah, that description, him just... You know, I just imagine... Yeah, like... He did something wrong. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did something wrong. There's, there's just... He's just in the blackness of space. He's just in nowhere. Yeah, exactly. And it is that, but it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, sure. I'm sure, you know, the young whippersnappers would look at it now and say, oh, that's just so lame. But no, it's really quite good. What are some of the things that uh, stand out in a good way about this book? In a good way. Since we're always t- being told that we're negative. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the, since we do have the Paralonic universe, the way that the different characters are described, but also like the Doctor's interactions with them being mm-hmm. different. Oh, yeah. And getting like two sides of the same coin. And even once the Doctor comes back to his reality, there's the line where he's like, he sees part of the other Lethbridge Stewart in his Lethbridge store. Yeah. And it's like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that is good on the page because Dick says it's almost as if he's seeing ghosts. Right. Because he knows those people are dead now. Yeah. Hmm. And it's like, that that you can't translate to film and that works really well. Yeah. Yeah. But, again, a lot of that's carried over by performance and if you're not familiar with how Caroline John plays Liz Shaw or the Brigadier... To see them as jackbooted fascists, literal yeah. jackbooted fascists. Literal, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's mesmerizing. They do yeah. a really good job of it. Yeah. So, yeah, that contrast is like, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of weird, though, that they would do it when we know so little about Liz to begin with, and this is her last story. It is? Yep. Huh. Liz is gone. She don't even come back to any of this? Nope. She is not going to get a goodbye oh. scene. We're going to get a mention of her next season. That's wow. it. Wow. Yeah. I didn't see that coming either. Nope. Mainly because of Caroline John's pregnancy, but also because the producers felt that it really wasn't working too well yeah. with her as a companion. And in fact, she um, she would end up playing the Doctor, essentially. Um, there, were, there was a fan-produced series of films in the 90s called Probe. P-R-O-B-E, you know, it was an acronym. And she plays Liz Shaw, but it's Liz Shaw as the head of the paranormal uh, investigation team in the 90s, and it's really quite good, and you see what she would have been like had she been the main character of something. You know, she was always going to be better at that than, say, any of the other Doctor's companions, though. In about two companions, we're going to be getting yet another companion who gets her own series later on, and it's actually produced by the BBC. So, <laughs> yeah, fun times to look forward to. All right, I'm doing too much talking. Talk to me. What else stood out to you? Like when um, Sutton, the drilling expert, they bring in from kicking and screaming from Kuwait. Um, well, she'll, you know, aren't you rather nervous for an oil man? I'm not nervous, said Sutton bluntly. I'm terrified. I know what can happen in there, and you don't. You're not brave, you're just plain stupid. I thought was a nice line. Which is one of the few nicer things that Sutton says to a woman in this book. Yeah. Um, I was his, wondering how you were going to react to that, specifically. Uh, well, what made you bring it up? Uh, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Sutton's a little 
dismissive of the fair sex, as he would probably put it. I'm, I'm being hugely sarcastic. Mm. He is a misogynist asshole, essentially. Mm. Well, he, he starts by asking her to work for him for free, essentially. Yeah. Why don't you come assist me? And we'll was he said, rattle off a few letters or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I did not think was going to establish him as one of the protagonists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, normally... Much less is this being a romantically winning movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, strangely enough, works in both universes, and it's kind of yeah. odd. I mean, he's not as sexist in the parallel universe. It's more that he's a criminal in the parallel universe, but still. And it's even odder watching it, because the actor that plays him is Derek Sutton, who played Za in the very first Doctor Who story, hmm. An Unearthly Child, he played a caveman. He's not too far removed from that here. He's still definitely cock him over the head and drag him behind drag him. Drag him away. Oh. No matter how intelligent <laughs> they are, because Petra, I'm sure her IQ is like three digits range, whereas his is in the low 20s. And they're going to have the new metal struck for the Order of the Turkish Bath. <laughs> mm. I was hoping somebody would bring up that <laughs> That was a good one. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is, he's not a dislikable character, but my god, they lay it thick with the uh, misogyny. And Dix, in adapting this book, even kind of makes it worse a little bit. So, is he English in the series, or is there a horrible fake Texan accent? He's English. Okay. Yeah. I sort of thought they might go that direction. It's kind of relieved when they didn't. Oh, god, no. They probably would have made him Australian if they really mm. wanted to do something like that. <laughs> Yeah, to make him the stereotype yeah. driller, but yeah, he's got a British accent. After I read Wyatt, Shadow the Doctor, Wyatt, come back. Uh, baby, come back was stuck in my head for the rest of that day. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> Wyatt, come back. Wyatt, come back. <laughs> oh, God. Now I have to seek out that song to put in the podcast. You don't have Thank to. You. Oh, of course you know I'm going to. Just to make it fun for the listeners. But, um... The, the weird thing about Sutton is that he's not too far removed from some of the other heroes on television at that time. I've mentioned Doomwatch before. And one of the guys in Doomwatch, in the very first episode, you're introduced to him after he says that he's, he's on bad terms with the secretary today because he pinched her bum after lunch. And this is one of our heroes. This is this roguish guy that we're supposed to really like a lot. Mm-hmm. And Christ Almighty, you end up liking him, but he is just a misogynist pig. And you've got, you know... Oh, he care. would tell you he loves women. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm he, not a misogynist. Yeah. I'm not a I love them as often as possible. <laughs> they like the objectification. Yes, and I think it comes from the whole James Bond thing. Mm-hmm. Because who's who's the most... Yeah, who is the archetypal British hero at this point? It's going to be James Bond, especially in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So everyone's trying to do that weird balance between misogyny and just coolness and not really getting it. Not Not that Bond ever really does either. No. I mean, that's kind of... Bond movies are kind of gross to watch these days in certain scenes. I think you'd agree. Oh, totally, but... Boys will be boys. Yeah. Bond will be Bond. It's just... <laughs> and Sutton will be Sutton, apparently. Sadly, that's the character. Though she does put him in his place very quickly. Yeah. So there is that. But then, of course, Lord Lomit, she, I guess, found that seductive. Yeah. Weirdly. Yeah, it may just be that she just hasn't gotten the attention, which I have trouble believing, because Sheila mm. Dunn is stunning. But 
It could be that. That's part of the fantasy. If I'm really mean to a beautiful woman, it will actually have a seductive yes. effect. And that's it's what, what Bond it's does. actually what women want. And that's what Bond does. For you to order the them around and ask them to work for you. Yeah. 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 Sadly. Uh, so, what else? What else stands out to you? This is kind of a nice haunting line. Numbly, though, they obeyed uh, Benton's commands, hoping desperately that somehow obeying orders, not thinking, would mm. save them. I love that. Yes. Line. I yeah. love that. Because, again, it, I'm sorry. That's what it felt like. Yeah. And you don't get that sense of panic on screen, really. And you should, because the world is blowing up around them literally. Yeah, literally. After they've struck Earth's core, there is a constant rumbling on the soundtrack. Mm. You know that the Earth is tearing itself apart. I can believe that. He had a very good sense of momentum and relentlessness going yeah. there. The only thing that I find missing from that bit is that on screen, just before we get the shot of the lava when the Doctor finally disappearing. In fact, you don't even see the Doctor disappear. The The cliffhanger of the episode is the lava coming in. You don't know whether the Doctor's made it or not. You have to wait until next week to find out. Oh. It's like, oh, you bastards. Bitches. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. And the chapter at least lets you know that. Before we get all of that, we get a montage of what other people are doing during all this, and you just have this hor- horrific montage of people running around in an orange brightly colored mist and at one point there is a single shot of these two guys just sitting like dazed in apparently a ditch not doing anything just going and you're like oh my god what has been happening because they're not even trying to save themselves they're just like the end's coming the end's coming the end's coming. And then you get the lava. So I'm, I'm glad that you said that you get that build-up in the book, though. It made me wonder, too, like, what if any response to the rest of the world went out? Yeah. Well, interesting you should ask this. There is a <laughs> sequel to this story, an unofficial sequel, because, of course, it's one of the BBC books, so it's not considered canon. Yeah. But it is a third Doctor book in name only because the third Doctor and Joe aren't away for most of it. Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright come back for the story. And they're working with the Master, who we'll meet next time. And they all travel to this parallel universe where the Master has been taken prisoner by somebody. And um, the, the only survivors of Earth are on the moon base, because there is a moon base, apparently. But Earth itself is just this kind of ever, ever expanding cloud of dust. Yeah. At this point, it's fascinating, but it also doesn't go quite far enough. Because yeah, you'd like to know, well, how did they get to this point, and for that matter, how did this fascist government show up? Yeah. Why do people still have knighthoods in this fascist government? Because Sir Keith is referred to consistently yeah, as Sir, Sir Keith. Keith. He shouldn't have a knighthood. <laughs> there shouldn't be ministries. Well, there probably are ministries, but different type of ministries, yeah. like Ministry of Love. <laughs> this, was, this was released in 1984. This doesn't seem yeah. like a Ministry of Love kind of fascist society they have. No. I could be wrong. Well, so. I'm thinking more that ministry in the Ministry of Love is where you got tortured. In mm. 1984, so. I forgot. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, there's so much that he could have. Because, yeah, the whole time it's they're just focused on, like, 
everyone running around at Project Inferno and like we have to tell the minister in London, but it's like you're about to destroy the whole fucking world. Anybody else care what the fuck's going on other than you Brits? Like <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And again, it goes back to that kind of tunnel vision that people like Elon Musk and his ilk yeah. will come down to and say, oh, we lost another person in an um, automated um, car test? Well, that's no. fine. I'm not a fan, but I don't think he's done this quite yet. But no, 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 not yet. But, well, I, I just have trouble. In fact, apparently of... his drilling technology is quite unremarkable. Right, well, that's good to know. Yeah. Thank God for that. Just because, I guess, in other stories, we have had a little bit more of a world scope. Yeah. And there's there's been, you know, the world coming together to deal with issues. Yeah. yeah. That's Not true. that any other, you know, nobody else can, can do anything in this situation. But. And weirdly enough, in books that weren't quite as well written as this. Yeah. Yeah, even in um, The Invasion. Yeah. Yeah. That even for stories like that, you've got the sense that the world is involved. And, and even the last one. You have the sense that, yeah, these mm-hmm. ambassadors are going to destroy Earth and all because of those damn Brits. Yeah. They should really just bomb the UK out of existence at this point because of, they really are causing most of the world's problems. <laughs> Attracting all the monsters. Yes, because they always land in England and they always seem to land close to unit headquarters, so they're going to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's bringing them? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you do have to wonder if during the Pertwee era say, an alien race landed in Japan and the Japanese version of UNIT had to take them out, or yeah. they ended up in the Australian Outback, or someone landed in New York. Or I thought UNIT like was that. UN. There's not supposed to be Japanese UNIT, right? I thought it was international. Oh, wait, UN? you're right. It is but... the United Nations. The, the United Nations... Well, at this point, it's the United Nations Intelligence Task Force and yeah. not whatever it is called now. It's not called that. Yeah. Anyway. Either way. Either way. I felt like there should have been some kind of intervention on, on other levels. But again, it, it just goes back to the idea of this like madman in charge with, with unchecked power. Yeah. Well, they just didn't understand how bad it was until there were only a few minutes left. True. There was that, but it's, it's still like in the alternate universe, whenever all shit was breaking loose, they were still just worried about telling the minister in London mm. what was going on, and it's not like... The other six billion people on the planet don't... Well, that's true. I, I, I see what you get, <laughs> that you're getting at, that the oversight isn't quite there that it needs to be there. So yeah. it's being circumvented. Um, that broken microcircuit. It's, you know, it sounds like Stallman did it in both universes, mm-hmm. and there's yeah. just nobody there in yeah. the other universe yeah. to see it yes. happening yeah. and to suspect. No doc- well, I thought maybe there's no doctor there when it happens, and that's one of the deciding factors why it can't be stopped in time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, funny thing about that, there's fan theory about that. <laughs> there's an interesting fan theory about that. Uh, if you watch the, sh- uh, the televised version, there is a uh, photo of the leader, the Supreme Leader. It's actually um, Jack Kine, the special effects supervisor. <laughs> At least I think it's Jack Kine. And... His likeness is similar to one of the faces that the doctor has shown at his at his trial uh-huh. in the war games that he'd regenerate into. Hmm. Fan theory is in that alternate universe, he does regenerate into that form, goes to Earth and says, Oh fuck it, hmm. I'm gonna control this. Wow. And that's the doctor that actually controls all of which is why he's not there. Yeah. 
And, in fact, in Face of the Enemy, that's heavily, heavily hmm. hinted at because the master in that universe is trying to stop it all. Doesn't he's more like, like the hero. Yeah. Doesn't seem like his brand of fascism, though. No. I would expect some more aggressive hippiness or something like that. You think? That. Yeah. Hmm. And, like, not... There's a lot of talk about how severely tailored the uniforms are and that sort of thing, and I would expect maybe some sort of enforced filialness or something. I'm not sure. More well, if we're going for a 19 more of a Stepford Wives kind of scenario oh, I see. or something. Out. Instead of jack literal jackbooted fascist thugs, I would expect a heavy-handed doctor to have more of a forced cheerfulness society where everyone oh, <laughs> well well that's a whole different discussion i've opened up there. no 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 <laughs> we want that discussion because eventually there will be a, uh, a a story in the 1980s called the happiness patrol that hmm. makes direct fun of the thatcher era and does that hmm. but the doctor says this is horrific i'm going to take down this I'm going to take down this government in one night. Mm. And he does do it. Mm. Um, but by then you have a much more proactive doctor going through it. Whereas here, yeah, I, I could see that. Usually when the doctor goes bad, and it does happen at least once in the series, he does go this imperial route. Mm. So you'd think he mm -hmm. wouldn't. But imagine somebody who has the doctor's sense of humor also being the one who could have you shot at any moment. Hmm. It's almost like watching, um, oh god, which one of the uh, Marx Brothers movies is it? Is it Duck Soup? Where he's the dictator of, uh, oh god, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the goddamn country. It's a brilliant movie, but again, it's one of those things where, oh, he's a dictator, and everything he says he's going to do he does. is pretty horrible. It sounds horrible, but then he tells jokes about it, and it's like, oh, ugh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my last screenshot is, you, sir, are a nitwit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly going on about Stallman's liver. I do like that's the big build-up, though. The doctor drew himself up to his full height, glared down at Stallman, and shouted, you, sir, are a, a nitwit. nitwit. <laughs> that's, that's the climax of his insults. <laughs> it's a family-friendly insult. Yeah, yeah. All ages. Well, I noticed that the only thing that they allow Stallman to say as an insult is that someone's an old woman. You could almost make yes. a drinking game out of that. There was, a, yes, and Maiden Ant before Maiden that. Ant. Yes. Maiden Ant was at least somewhat amusing, but old, you old woman, it's just so right. well, the, lame. The, the Not doctor, clever. The doctor Not says that he treats the computer hmm. as if it was yes. Maiden Ant. Yes. And he says, Sir Keith is an old woman. Old woman. Old woman. Bad. The worst Sad. thing you could possibly be. I'm... I'm creative and clever. Yes. Bleeding out of her eyes, bleeding old out of her whatever. You can woman. actually no, see that. No, she's old. <laughs> she's dried up. Yeah. Low it's energy. A, it's a lack of, <laughs> lack of imagination and insults. Yeah. But enough about the president. Uh, uh yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, how do we feel about the regulars in this one? For that matter, how, how, are, you, how are you enjoying the Pertwee Doctor so far? was already predisposed to love the Pertwee Doctor. It was really? predestined before oh, right, the foundation of the podcast. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember his hair and his car. It's <laughs> yes. my first formative idea of what is the Doctor. And you get both here. Um, yes. Yes. Because he's not bald and he drives around. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, 
the Doctor definitely has more going on in this story between the two universes. Mm-hmm. Um, Liz and the Brigadier are... Yeah, there's not a whole lot. Hmm. I don't know. Even, like, their alternate universe versions of them are... It's interesting to see how different the, the two are, but overall it's focused more on the secondary characters. Yeah. yeah. It's not the mainstays. I, I think you're right. And I think part of that is that Dix is adapting a story where you can see the differences and you can see the difference in performance and you know these characters quite well from having watched them week after week after week. Whereas if this is, say, your third or fourth or fifth book with the Brigadier in it, yeah, you're not as familiar with his character traits just yet. Is he going also or just Liz? Oh no, just Liz. Yeah, we're going to have the Brigadier for quite a while yet. Yeah, the Brigadier. Yeah, because Pertwee's going to be on Earth for quite a while yet. I, mean, I could see someone concluding that Liz is too perfect because she has multiple PhDs, she always knows what to do scientifically, but that's just a lack of imagination in writing her, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because mean, even with all of that knowledge and even with all that background, they still haven't utilized it very much. No. And now they're not going to get the chance to. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Did she it's... quit because she was pregnant, or did someone pull a Bill Cosby on her? Oh, God. Well, you fired Lisa Bonet, oh, who was the star yes. of A Different World, for being pregnant with... Yeah. I'm for being... sorry. No, no, not my, no way you were going to... No. Yeah, well, my, for being pregnant with Zoe Kravitz. Inter- so. Yes, my interpretation of that... Uh, phrase is slightly different than the verb form. Sorry. That's fine. Well, but it's just... Well, it, it is, <laughs> It is very darkly ironic now that he was so concerned with appearances and propriety. Oh no, right? Yes, that he fired Lisa Bonet for being pregnant. It is, and yeah. He was even married at the time, and adult and all this, but didn't want to do a story about a pregnant college student. See, wow. I thought it was more to do with the fact that she went off and did that uh, photo spread, and then followed it up by doing um, that god-awful movie with Mickey, Mickey Rourke. It was all his sense of yeah. her impropriety when we now know he was a serial rapist. Now, of course, yeah. it greatly improved because then they had to make the comic relief characters grow up and that actually ended up being a much more interesting story. Yes. But, but That's true. she was fired for grossly unfair reasons. That's time. right. I, I had forgotten that. I forgot that there's actually almost a whole season with her on A Different World before the show gets good. Yeah, I think it is the whole season and then she's... Then she drops out of college, is the story. She's yeah. back on the Cosby show later. But and suddenly the, yeah. the, the, the show grows the beard, as they say on uh, TV tropes. <laughs> I don't know that one. You don't know that one? No. It refers to the third season of uh, Next Gen, hmm. when Riker grows the beard, <laughs> suddenly <laughs> the show gets really well, yeah. good. <laughs> so good. whenever you say that well, the show goes yeah. really good all of a sudden, well, he's talking about the how beard. they made him shave at first, and he came back after hiatus with the beard <laughs> kind of defiantly and was yeah. allowed to keep it. And luckily, he did. we're all thankful. Yes. We are indeed. <laughs> Those of all us that who to say, was hair. she fired for being pregnant, or did she quit because she was pregnant? Um, that's just it. The jury is still out mm-hmm. on that because if you listen to one story, it's that the pregnancy was there. If you listen to another, they were already figuring that they weren't going to mm-hmm. use her again. That Barry Lutz looked at the character and said she's a little too sophisticated to be a, a companion. Let's just get someone who's more traditionally a companion. And boy, did they. (laughs) I love Katie Manning to death, but yes, Joe Grant is 
uber companion. It's very much, yeah, the exact opposite of Lucia, as we'll see. In fact, we'll see it twice because we get introduced to her twice. These early Target books are very weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so poor Liz. So we really can't say much about Liz, can we? Because she's just not really there. I will say this, though. I have to make this joke. He changes one of her lines. The alternate, alternate Liz. The, the doctor says, you, you wanted to be a scientist, didn't you? And she says, in the televised version, I read physics at university. Mm-hmm. Which would mean, you know, majoring mm-hmm. in physics. <laughs> the, the line in the book is, I took a doctorate in science. Mm-hmm. It's like, in science. It's... It was blinding. Yes, it blinded me with <laughs> science. all the science. It's all the science. I'm a, science. Science. I'm yeah. a doctor in all the all science. The science <laughs> which she kind of is, uh-huh. actually. It's a bit like uh, Dick's Birth Mystery Theater sketches with Dr. Science. It's like, <laughs> the, the, the tagline was, he's not a real scientist. I have a master's degree in science. <laughs> and it reminded me of that. And I couldn't stop laughing for that whole page. It's like, oh God, she's got a doctorate in science. There's no stopping her. <laughs> But apart from that, you're right, there's just not much to do there. Yikes. Well, um... And we don't get a sense that she's incompetent. We get a sense that she's been sidelined. Well, that all the people who have been contributing have been sidelined by the single-minded person right. who's ignoring all advice. Exactly. Are there things we don't like? She should have come up... It seems like the character should dictate. She should have come up with... A clever plan, even if it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I thought she was more passive than typical in yeah. the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the point of making lies up about where the doctor has gone. Because when um, uh, Greg comes by the hut, they say, oh, I, I wanted to check because there's this rumor going around that the doctor blew himself up. And she's like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. But no one saw him leave. Oh, he yeah. She should be working on the problem. Trying yeah. to figure yeah. it out. She should be. And yet, somehow not. You're right. Except for keeping him warm at the end because yes. he's in a coma. And she's seen him that way before. And she's seen him. That's new. That's <laughs> actually new. That's an addition to the book. That's kind of Dick saying, okay, let's remind people this is yeah. the same character they read four, uh, three books ago. Yeah. Even though they never will have read them in that order that we do. She only yeah. in four stories, is that it? Five? Four stories. Oh. That's it. Four stories canonically. Well, no... Alright. Let me make this caveat. I'm hoping hoping that you will have forgotten this by the time we get to this story. When we get to the 20th anniversary story, she does make an appearance, but it's not her. Mm. So there we go. There's Liz, but it's a different actress. Yeah, well, it is the actress. Mm. And it okay. is supposed to be Liz Shaw, but it's not Liz Shaw. Okay. <laughs> I promise to forget, by the way. Yeah, I, I don't I'm definitely going to forget that. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. No. I don't want to give too much away because I think I already said that about Wendy Padbury and uh, Jamie Mc... Oh, well, Wendy Padbury. Zoe and Jamie, <laughs> that they come back for that same story. And it's Wendy Padbury, the companion. The companion. It's just, I, I can't help it. I, I love that woman. I love that woman to tears. Other things that struck you as weird? Anything you didn't like? I hated the fact that the doctor refers to them as 
tells the brigade leader to watch after the ladies. Mm. And then he says, all right, ladies, let's go. And it's like, ladies, where the fuck did that come from? No one calls anyone lady in this alternate universe, and the doctor should know better. <laughs> it's seriously. Yeah, uncharacteristic. Very. Mm. There's that line. Before the sea of red-hot lava engulfed the hut, its victims had just a few seconds to realize that their sacrifice might not have been in vain. God, they don't get to shoot themselves. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I mean, a sea of lava is going to destroy them pretty quickly, too. Let's hope so. (laughs) Let's hope so. Let's hope they just kind of dive headfirst into it. Yeah, just incinerate immediately. Incinerate immediately. Yeah. Yeah, you have in here, in your notes, the line, uh, Yes, of course, of course, it has to be like that. An infinity of universes, an infinite number of choices. That's why free will is not an illusion after all. The pattern can be changed. So, yeah, that's going back to that. Which is so bizarre for the third Doctor to say, and yet you have the eleventh Doctor later having to be reminded the time can be rewritten. Yeah. It's like, of course, you did it way back when. Yeah, you managed it. But it also is one of those things that does give credence to Trey's objection, because if there are an infinite universe of choices, then it should be more like that Star Trek Next Generation episode where Worf is pinging through his Mm -hmm. different um, uh, quantum... um, realities. Yeah, where there's minute differences Mm -hmm. and not you know, everything is different Mm -hmm. except everybody blinked everybody else and had the same kids. But that's also a possibility. It is. (laughs) It is, yeah. And we can't discount that because according to the story, that's what happened. That's what happened in this story, so that's the reality that we have to go with. And the next time we go to an alternate universe in Doctor Who, same thing happens when we meet the Cybermen from the other universe in uh, David Tennant's time. You still have a Mickey. You still have... Uh, you don't have Rose, hmm. except as a dog. Yeah. You have Jackie Tyler. You have her father. But at least there, there's something to the fact that Rose isn't there because they decided not to have children. Right. So there is that difference. There's another show that I loved when it was on, but nobody knows what I'm talking about when I bring it up, called Journeyman. I don't know if you remember it. It was on NBC for one season. I'm surprised they let it go a whole season. But it was essentially... Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. It's that gong again. It's that gong again. Sorry, Uncle Tony. That's... Didn't make it a whole season. Gong. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the other... No, that was the, the mug, the plate. Yes. A little more sonorous. A little bit. They had, they, it was compared to Quantum Leap because it was very much like it. Yeah. Except it had Kevin McKidd from uh, Rome in it. And there was an episode in which he did change something, something slight in the past. Actually, I think it was the San Francisco earthquake. He warned people about it or something. And when he got back to his own timeline, current time, computer technology had suddenly taken a quantum leap forward, so he had, you know, these weird hollow screens and such. But when he gets home, his son is gone, and it's, he's been replaced by a daughter. Mm. So it's like, ah, of course, that's the mm. sperm that made it in that universe. Yeah. So, yes, Trey, you're right. The, the right sperm doesn't always make it to the egg. Yeah. But, yeah. It's kind of harsh to refer to one of your children as the right sperm and the other one as the wrong sperm, I guess. <laughs> no, one's the left sperm. Oh, look, the wrong sperm. Got a C in science. <laughs> uh. Science. Why, why is this reminding me? I'm making my way through the se- that 70s show right now, and that reminds me of Red Kong and Erica Dumbass. Yes, oh, yes. 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 Y
my foot in your ass. <laughs> fine. He's a fine character. A he classic. really is. Yes. And he was in Star Trek too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In Star Trek Voyager, as a yeah. character who is changing the timelines. Yes. yes. And so he it has some. Can't get that one colony back, and yes. Can't he... get his wife back. Yes. Yeah. His his wife was killed in an attack and couldn't get her back, and it's meant to be a gloss on. 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas, and it's probably one of the few mm. Voyager episodes that's worth a damn, mm. even with the big re reset button at the end. Um, but back to Inferno. <laughs> wow, we went really far afield on that one. <laughs> Which is fine. Oh, I meant to say about, um, you know, the child that doesn't ma matter as much. There's a podcast in which a guy interviews inanimate objects, and I can't remember the name of it. But at one point, he interviews a lamppost, and they're talking about children. Pulls up the lamppost, argues with the hole. Well, no, 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 no. but he's talking with the lamppost. Signpost. Uh, lamppost, lamppost. And she, the lamppost, says, oh, it's like when you have children and you, you know, if you have too many, you get rid of a few of them. And he says, oh, no. Wait, wait, what? We don't do that. We, we don't do that at all. Instead, we, and she says, I'll keep the best one, right? Because she's wow. a lamppost and doesn't understand how human reproduction works. Wow. So it's it's funny, though. Where was I going with that? I have no idea. <laughs> Fuck. Euthanasia? This, this generally beer is wonderful. Culling? Yes. This beer is wonderful. See if you get a sponsorship. Oh, oh, God, I wish. God, are you kidding? Yeah. I am. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, I am, actually. All right. Anything else? Anything, Anything else? else? I have exhausted my material. You've exhausted your material? you burned through it, in other words? I, sir, am a nitwit. <laughs> you don't know. Certainly not. I do find it interesting that this is one of the few stories where the doctor appears to everybody else to be crazy, but he's the one sane man. And that's really only going to happen the same way one more, uh, two more times. Davison's last story, The Caves of Androzani, and the uh, David Tennant story, Midnight. I don't know if anyone remembers that, where they're going across a planet that they they cannot look out the windows because there's some sort of um, terrifying sunlight yeah. that will kill them all. Yeah. And the Doctor kind of overplays his hand and everyone turns against him very quickly. Yeah, yeah so it's interesting. Kind of. <laughs> Anything else? Hmm. Oh, just, I guess, kind of how in the end, they do defy the dummy who's who's wrong. They go against him in, in the end to save them anyway. Uh, in what way? I'm sorry. I'm confused now. He's, he's still wanting to drill. Oh, yeah. He's still drilling, and they're finally like, no, no, mm -hmm. finally. They just, they're like, no, mm -hmm. enough is enough. And it's like, what? What took you so long to just yeah. grow a spine and yeah. go against it? Like, it does seem like they don't know how bad it's going to be. It does seem a little... Yeah. Not yeah. out of nowhere, but it, expect there to be more of a, an obvious change. Yeah. There's something Deciding about... Factor. I think it's, it's the, the fact that Sir Keith survives. Mm. I think that's okay. the, the difference. Okay. Because the doctor sense. himself, apart from cluing them into knowing the number two output pipe and saving their asses yeah. on that occasion. Yeah. Because they didn't know what to do. You just like to say ass. I do. That that <laughs> manages to be the one that 
that's the turning point. It's just it's not followed through in the original universe. Yeah. What I do find interesting, too, is this is one of the last times we're going to see the Brigadier and the Doctor actually adversarial towards each other mm -hmm. in our own reality. Because my belief about the story is that it would be about half as long if the Doctor, when he stopped by the Brigadier before Stalin's going to break that microcircuit, yeah. would just say, hey, come with me. He's got a mi microcircuit in his pocket. We need to figure it out because I saw him about to sabotage it. Mm. Instead, the Doctor says, shut up and follow me and watch. Mm. And Stallman manages to outwit him. Yeah. And it's like, why didn't you just trust him? And by the end you get this kind of, oh, well, old fella, why don't you help me, you know, get the TARDIS off the garbage heap that I managed to put yeah. it on. The last scene's pretty funny. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it's the last time we see Liz because she's laughing at them as they leave. And then she's gone. And that's it? Because the lava hits her at that point. No. <laughs> it is a surprise ending. The hand comes up from the grave. Oh, <laughs> God. What a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do find one other thing interesting. The Dix is changing the story again. Another version of the Doctor's Exile. In this case, it's not his memory mm. necessarily working. It's the TARDIS itself yeah. that's not working. Yeah. So, anyway. Shall we go on to Goodreads? Let's read them good. Alright, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our new Goodreads group, it's not new anymore, by the deadline so we get a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. We may just have your review read out loud here. In fact, all three of the reviews except for one uh, come from that group. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.72. Which is, yeah, reasonable. Medium okay. Medium okay. Yeah, it's certainly better than, uh, I think it's slightly better than uh, Ambassadors of Death was mm -hmm. last week. T.E. visited our Goodreads page and gave the book a 4.5 out of 5, saying, I'm probably marking this high because of the nostalgia value, but I did enjoy revisiting it. Not everything aged well. The brash and flirty Australian, that's where I got that Australian bit, seems to stray way too quickly into the type of harassment that would either result in HR or a swift boot, boot to his bore shaft, so to speak. Not necessarily in 1970. No. It's been And some of the dialogue is, shall we politely say, of a vintage. Also, the Doctor does not come off brilliantly here. His attempts to trick others so he can slip away go beyond the selfish and virgin times on the callous. That's true. He tricks Liz again. It's no wonder she leaves. What does work is the deft way of describing the fascist world, offering just enough detail to leave the rest of the nasty details to the imagination. To be, but to be sure, even dumb kids, as I was when I first read it, could work out exactly how dangerously corrupt that world had become. It's also nice that alternate Liz gets to be a little more rounded than she could have been, let's be honest. In about 99% of Dark Mirror Universe stories, she would have been less authoritarian and more kinky down in the Matrix, no doubt with Jack Boots and a killer scowl. Yes, he's thinking of the DS9 Mirror Universe uh -huh. episode, where Kira is not only a fascist, but like... Omnisexual. Well, yeah, and like, uh, <laughs> has sex slaves, kind of, but yeah. It's a very kinky kind of fascist. Yes. 
We're spared that cliche, even if Eyepatch Brig plays entirely the stereotype at times. Overall, I quite enjoyed the story and was pleasantly surprised how well the world hopping was handled without the visual clues of the TV series. Michael, who also contributed to the group page, gave us a 3 and says, After praising the televised version, it's a shame that one of the Pertwee era's best stories only gets a middle-of-the-road adaptation from Terrence Dix. Seeing how solid his adaptations can be in novels like The Autonomous Invasion or Day of the Daleks, which is coming out by the way, makes Inferno feel like a missed opportunity. It would have been fun to see Dix give the alternate universe characters a bit more rounding out on the printed page than just translating the script to the printed page. I listened to this one a couple of years ago when the audiobook hit Audible. I kept thinking it's a shame that two of my favorite Pertwee-era stories didn't get Uncle Terrence of early days when it came to the printed version, so I completely agree. David E. contributes another review this time, um, though without a rating, and he says, in contrast to the previous TV story, I love Inferno. It perfectly sums up what the new showrunners wanted the show to be. The book tends to lose some of that. Dix does little to elaborate from what's on the script, and de desperately needs it. As prose along, the story comes across a bit too grim. A couple more quips and asides would have been welcome. It would have been amazing to have heard a short history of the parallel world or the Brigadier's life story. We get a tiny paragraph of the Doctor's suppositions of that world's history, and that's that. Dix also tends to repeat phrases and sentences too much. There were loads of times when characters ran from the room. I know he was trying to instill a sense of urgency, but it comes across as lazy to repeat the same sentence over and over again. The biggest disappointment is that he could have even—he could have given Liz Shaw a good send-off, which is entirely absent in the TV story, and he doesn't. It would have just taken a couple of pages. I almost feel like writing it myself and sticking the pages in at the end. He got a good send-off. Like, he got a good send-off on screen, too, also. He did. He did. And finally, Karen gives it two stars in a brilliantly short review. Drilling into the Earth's core releases green goo that turns people into primordial mutants. Yep, I'll buy that. Fair yeah. enough. It's a bit of a stretch. I did expect more of an explanation at some point. For yeah. The personality change. Yeah, especially since, and this is something we didn't even discuss, these prime words as they're called in the scripts, um, for some reason are... It's a regressive mutation. Yes. So they're... But evolving backwards? Yes, but, but they're also, trying to force it by causing others to be mutated and by Also extremely causing, aggressive, which yeah. is not necessarily consistent with evolving backwards. No. Not automatically associated with different levels of aggression. No, yeah. and it's kind of weirdly subverted with Stallman because even though they have this kind of need for the drilling to finish, so does Stallman, so there's not much of a difference. He's yeah. just, a, yeah, maybe evolved asshole or something. We've had other stories before where various aliens or other creatures needed extreme hot or extreme cold to thrive. I was actually surprised that the lava killed the mutant. Yes. I thought that it would make them even more superpowered. Yeah. That they yeah. needed the lava that would have been to heat up their environment. But of course, you could never have seen that on screen, and so Dix doesn't do it. Yeah, we don't even see the lava kill them, sadly enough. Oh, well. <laughs> So, Allison, <laughs> out of five stars, what would you give this? I was okay with not seeing people killed by lava on screen. Um, so I had mixed feelings because I felt like it had a really good sense of momentum and relentlessness and peril, and yet was so boring at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, once again, I was kind of waiting for a little more profundity. 
um, or character development. I don't know. I feel very mixed about it. I'm going to go with two. With two? Mediocre rating for my... But yeah. Not mediocre feeling, but a lot of positive and a lot of negative overall. Okay. I guess I'm I expected sorry. more of a definite evolution for the Doctor himself. And now that I know it's Liz's last story, I am disappointed that there's not more of a send-off for her. Yeah. Okay. Great. Dalton? Yeah, I think I think for me, kind of like Allison, it's like, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Uh, so, yeah, probably three out of five for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just some questions were raised that weren't answered, and I just feel kind of unfulfilled in ways. It's like, what's, what's actually going on here? But there were some interesting parts to it that really brought me in. The pacing, the addition of the second universe to, to allow us some extra time to flush out the story figure out how to fix things um yeah but three out of five for me okay and i'm gonna split the difference and be 2.5 because it really is literally middle of the road it's not bad dicks it's not great dicks it's just kind of yeah Meh. yeah yeah ambassadors of death was you know terrible compared to this um, but this one isn't that much better and then of course you read auton invasion and you're like that's what it could have been and I would love to have seen this book written in 1975 because it would have been a very different book. For that matter, um, oh wait, <laughs> I, I, I keep thinking that Terrence, uh, that uh, Malcolm Hulk adapted Don Houghton's other script. He didn't. That's going to be Terrence Dix as well. And it's going to be mid-80s again when he does it. So expect another of these. Expect another clunker. Yeah, but it would have been... I would love to see someone like Malcolm Hulk take the reins for a story like this one, because my God, it could have just been meaty. Instead, the he... first page really is. I oh feel God, quite yeah, meaty, it is. Quite good. Yeah, it's very good. It's a much better introduction than you get on screen, because the first shot on screen is the Doctor singing as he's driving down a road. So it's like, oh well, this is promising. 126 pages. He manages to get it down, to boil it all down, and while there are sequences that are missing that really should have been missing in the original, there's a <laughs> lot less Petra and Sutton, for one thing. You don't get a scene between Gold and his uh, driver at one point. It still feels a bit padded. So, yeah. 3.5. That No, 2.5. 2.5. 2.5. What the fuck is wrong with me? Anyway, so thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we move on to season eight, where we get an old enemy and a new one, all wrapped into one in Terror of the Autons. Ooh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. U Target, Book Club Podcast, All in Order Those Faces Like a Crazy Person. You can also visit our Christine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtarnbc. Videos of our first 12 episodes are on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor.org forward slash videos. On Twitter, we're at dwtarnbc. You can subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails, you email us at dwtarnbc at gmail.com. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. And if you listen to the end of the music in this episode, you will hear, finally, me asking David Tennant at C2E2 
what his favorite Target novel is and what his response was. So thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. that he had read any of them. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. David Tennant was a huge Doctor Who fan to the point that in his high... I think it was his high school yearbook. You know how they say, what's your aspiration for the future? He said, I want to play Doctor Who. Oh, wow. His entire acting career was geared towards eventually wow. being Doctor Who. Of course, this was during a time when Doctor Who wasn't on, but he still became an amazing actor. Yeah. Like, and, uh... That Southie. Who am I thinking of? Southie. That's... Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. <laughs> well, but he, you know, talks about how he grew up loving... Um, Batman? Daredevil. Oh, Daredevil. And Frank Miller Daredevil. And he grew up to not only play Daredevil, but he married Elektra. That's so, true. That, and he's living managed, the dream. And managed yeah. to ruin all of it. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was his dream, not our dream. Yeah, so. that's true. And nor was it hers, oh. as it turns out. Oh, well. All right, let me record the intro to that uh, David Tennant thing. And as promised, here is the very brief and hopefully cleaned up enough audio of me at C2E2 2019 asking David Tennant what his favorite Doctor Who novel was because I couldn't get him to, uh, well, they didn't allow me to ask him to record a bumper or else he would have, I'm sure. Anyway, here he is. Hi. Hello. Hi. I'm uh, Tony from Chicago. Tony. Yes. Um, I have a podcast as well, the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Oh, great! And I assume in your uh, Spotify mentions. Um, <laughs> and wherever you get your podcasts. Exactly. Yes. I Smash that subscribe button. Exactly. Um, I assume you've read those in your youth, and I was wondering, uh, our listeners were wondering, what your favorite Target novelization was. Oh, very good question. I did read them, yes, I did read them as a child. Um, what was my favorite one? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I used to churn through them quite quickly, so it's quite hard to remember specifics. Um, I remember uh, getting a first edition of The Five Doctors in McDougall's bookshop in Paisley um, before the show had even been on TV. It came out, like, I think by mistake, a few days earlier. Um, unless I'm misremembering this, is that a fact? I read it Saturday before yeah. myself. So. Right, there you go. Um, uh, so I think that became my favourite just because it was so exciting. Uh, um, other favourites? Oh, I don't know. I mean, they, they were all great because it was before even Betamax. So <laughs> there was no other way of experiencing these stories that felt like they, you know, descended into way back into history. You know, TV was in black and white when these stories were on. It seemed impossible, it seemed impossibly far away. Um, uh, so, uh, it, 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 yeah, they were, they were very exciting and very readable and very, uh, they were, uh, uh, I think, a great, because they were written very clearly without patronizing uh, a younger audience, they were written, you know, they, you, you, I discovered vocabulary from reading those books. Um, uh, and uh, I loved them, and I, you know, I, I loved that show, so ways of experiencing the stories I'd never seen was always very exciting. Thank you, and good luck with your podcast. Yes, good luck.
Battery subscribe.